0: Miracles are always designed when they're done by Jesus to encourage saving faith in the one who performs the miracle. The point of the miracle was to point to Jesus as God so that those watching would place their faith in him as their savior. That's the whole point. Open your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. We're going to continue uh, in the Gospel of Mark for the next few months, Lord willing. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent us the Savior. Today we're going to be stating the greatest of all of God's gifts, His gift of forgiveness. Just by way of brief recap, in the very first verse of his gospel, Mark declares that Jesus is the Son of God, and then he demonstrates the deity of Christ in this first chapter by reviewing Various instances where Christ exercised power, divine power, power over people, power over demons, power over disease. He shows Jesus preaching God's word with convicting power, casting demons out of a man in the synagogue, healing Peter's wife's mother, and then spending most of the night healing sick people in Capernaum. Jesus heals a leper and then commands the leper not to tell anybody about it because he didn't want to deal with the crowds, but... This leper spreads the news of this healing. And remember, leprosy was incurable. He spreads the news of his healing far and wide, so much so that Jesus can't even enter a village without being mobbed. And so Jesus stays in unpopulated areas in very rural uh, climates, and people find him and follow him, because he is doing things that no one has ever seen before. Unfortunately, the crowds that follow him are really not interested in spiritual healing of their souls. They're interested in physical healing of their bodies. Austin's going to show you a map of Israel to kind of give you a context at this point in time. Jesus, of course, started his first year of ministry in Judea, in southern Israel, in Jerusalem. And then the Pharisees and scribes got so persecutorial, they really would have killed him at that point in time, he left and moved the 70 miles north up to the Sea of Galilee, which you see a map of to the city of Capernaum. Capernaum was the major fishing village on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. It's situated on two major trade routes, the King's Highway inland and then the Via Maris, the way of the sea. And so it was a very, very crucial strategic location for Jesus to uh, orient his ministry. Capernaum is going to be his base of ministry operations for the next year and a half. So he's going to spend most of his three-year ministry at Capernaum. And he's spending time in Peter's house. Now, we know Peter was married because we just found out in chapter 1 that he had healed Peter's wife's mother several days earlier. She was probably a widow. That's why she was living with Peter and uh, her daughter. So let's pick up the narrative in chapter 2, verse 1. When Jesus had come back to Capernaum, now remember, he had been spending some time in the rural climate because there was rural areas, the villages surrounding him because there was so much mob action in Capernaum. So it says, when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Here's the principle. Jesus made the gospel the center of his life and so should we. Jesus made the gospel the center of his life, and so should we. The rumors were flying. Jesus is back in town, and he's staying at Peter's place. Now, if you recall, Middle Eastern hospitality does not require you to call in advance before you're going to drop in. If you're in the Middle East, especially in the first century, dropping in was normal. So there were people that just dropped in Peter's place. They heard Jesus was there. This house was jam-packed. They were squeezed inside like groupies in a rock concert. You probably couldn't fall down if you tried. There was just a lot of people in here because Jesus had been healing people and everybody wanted to be in on the action. Matter of fact, the crowd was jammed up against the door and spilled out into the streets, just like I guess you've seen uh, Black Friday, Thanksgiving Day sales, you know, when people are jammed up against the door. Only this time, instead of there being a TV they wanted, it was Jesus they wanted and the house he was in was pretty small. By the way, um, a big crowd is never proof of spiritual success. This crowd is very curious, but they're not committed. What they crave is the spectacular. They want to see miracles. They want to see wonderful things, supernatural things happen, but they're not interested in spiritual transformation. They want to be amazed and astonished, but they don't want to be changed. And Luke tells us that this crowd is comprised not just of common lay people. Luke tells us there's Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law in the crowd as well. These were the legalists. They were the religious leaders uh, on Judaism. They were the theologians who studied and practiced Judaism. And these teachers, these scribes, believed, number one, you were in God's favor because, number one, you were born a son of Abraham. So if you were a Jew, in their minds, you had the inside track to God already, number one. Number two, they believed that you earned favor with God by not only keeping the law of Moses, which was pretty extensive, but you also had to keep another 613 man-made rules and regulations and traditions and all sorts of other things that had accumulated over the centuries. Very complex system of of man-made works righteousness, which if you kept, led to enormous pride. So the spiritual leadership, the religious leadership in Judaism at this point in time was very arrogant. And they believed that they had the keys to the kingdom. Not only were they Jewish, but they had written a good chunk of these rules, and so everybody had to keep them. Now, these scribes and Pharisees, these leaders, didn't come just from a lot of surrounding villages. Some of them had come all the way from Jerusalem literally 70 miles north, to hear Jesus. And by the way, they were not there to be transformed by Jesus. They were there to trap him. They were there to look at anything he said that they could accuse him of for breaking the Mosaic Law or not keeping their traditions. What they were trying to do is discredit him so they could destroy him. They remember, these religious leaders, they controlled the religious system that they sat atop of and it kept the common people in spiritual bondage, and kept them in spiritual control. And Jesus was a major threat to their control over that religious system. Now, you know that anyone can attract a crowd. You can can go to a circus, you can go to a celebrity, you can go to a show in Vegas, and you can attract a crowd. It's what you do with the crowd that really counts. Jesus did not come to entertain this crowd with miracles. He had a message they needed to hear, but it was not one they wanted to hear. The crowd valued Jesus' miracles more than the message of the gospel. And because they were prioritizing life here and now, earthly life, Jesus was all about eternal life, the kingdom of heaven. How do you obtain eternal life? So Jesus is preaching the word, God's word, to this crowd, the word of the gospel. And we know that preaching is one of God's primary methods of reaching the lost with His good news of forgiveness. Jesus first is going to tell them the bad news, right? Pastor Roger mentions this often. The bad news is that we are all sinners, we are all separated from God, and these religious leaders have to turn away from their sins in repentance and turn to God. Now, we know that they didn't want to hear that. They thought that they were keeping the law adequately at this point in time, and Jesus said, no, God's standard is perfection, and you're not even close. After we tell people the bad news that they're sinners and need a Savior, then we can tell them the good news. And Jesus was saying to them, I myself am the Messiah who has come to reconcile and restore your broken relationship with God. Jesus told them they can be saved by placing their faith in Him and not in themselves. By the way, you already know this. No one goes to heaven based on what they do or what they fail to do. No one gets into heaven based on what you do or fail to do. People are not made right with God based on human performance. They are made right with God based on what Jesus has already done on our behalf. So Jesus is preaching the gospel to this crowd who has come to see him do a miracle because he knows more than physical healing, they need spiritual reconciliation with God. Jesus always prioritized the gospel, made it the center of his ministry, the center of his life, and we should follow that. In the middle of this message, there's an interruption. Verse 3, it says, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Here's the principle. Faith always leads to action. Do we trust Jesus enough and love people enough to introduce them to the Savior. Faith always leads to action. Do we trust Jesus enough and love people enough to introduce them to the Savior? Now, this man is paralyzed. He's a paraplegic for sure, quite likely a quadriplegic. He's carried on a mat, literally a poor man's bed. Peter's house is jam-packed. And the men, these four men, are trying to get their friend on the pallet in to see Jesus. And they can't talk anyone in the crowd to let them pass. Matter of fact, Jesus has been healing so many people, I mean, literally around the clock, that you would think that this crowd, looking at a quadriplegic on a pad, being carried, you would think they would make way, right? Wrong, right? This isn't about, this is not a sympathetic crowd. This is a crowd that wants to be close to the action. They want to see Jesus do something spectacular, and they're not even willing to step aside to let a crippled person be healed by Jesus. They don't, no, one, no one cuts in line, not even a quadriplegic, right? However, this man's four friends are determined to get their friend in front of Jesus. And they are not inside-the-box thinkers. If you can't get in through the door, then we're going to find another way inside. If you can't get past the crowd, then go where there is no crowd. If you can't get through, go up. Austin's going to show you some pictures of what a typical first-century Jewish home looked like. Keep these pics in mind. He's going to keep them up here for you a little bit so you can see what a home looked like. Traditionally. Most homes in Palestine at this point in time were built out of a combination of dirt, clay, rock, or stone. There's a lot of rocks and stones. If you've been to Israel, you know that it's largely a gravel pile. So you build with what you have. Generally, they were one-story homes. It was a large center room that we would call a great room. And houses generally had flat roofs, kind of like what we would call a deck in our day. People would siesta on the roof in the afternoons and often sleep on the roof during uh, summer nights because the Mediterranean Sea is only about 50 miles to the west, and in the evening you would get nice ocean breezes uh, sweeping over this area, so it would be a nice cool place to, uh, to, uh, to sleep. Usually there was an exterior stone staircase exterior to the house, butted up against the house, and that's how you got on top of the roof. And then they would build generally some sort of little parapet or some sort of a a railing so you wouldn't fall off the roof at that point in time. Now, the roof itself was built of of, uh, structural beams of wood. So you had these timbers you'd lay across the roof, wall to wall, on top of the house. And then on top of those timbers, they would get smaller branches that they would take all the leaves off of and, and lay those out on top of those timbers. And on top of that, they would put reeds or thatch. On top of the thatch, the builder would then get a really thick layer of fresh wet clay like mortar, and they would spread it over the top of that thatch and seal it against the weather. They had these rollers that they would roll this thing smooth and hard and let the sun bake it and uh, so it would be rainproof. And then on top of that, they would put clay tiles. So this is a multi-layer roof made out of material they had. And you say, well, how come they didn't just use wood? Well, the rainfall in the, in uh, Israel is very, very thin, so there's not a lot of trees. There's a lot more trees now. They've planted millions of them since 48. But at that period of time, there wasn't a lot of trees. So most things were built out of of rock. So the friends of this man who's paralyzed carry him up the exterior stairway, get on the top of the roof of Peter's house. Now this is not a simple task. First of all, if they're going to get this guy in front of Jesus, they got to figure out where Jesus is inside the house. It does no good to tear an opening in the roof and Jesus is in another room. I mean, they need to know where Jesus is in the house and get right over him and open the roof up right above Jesus because they want to drop this guy right in front of Jesus. they got to calculate that. Then they got to remove the tiles, dig out the top layer of ceiling clay, remove the thatch and the wood in order to make an opening in the roof. It's a lot of hard work. If you're the crowd inside and you're listening to Jesus preach and all of a sudden clay starts falling on you and dirt and you're hearing this noise on the roof that would be a little distracting right i wonder what jesus did You think he kept teaching i don't know it'd be fascinating so there's a lot of noise coming there's a lot of dust and dirt falling etc i mean they're they're, they're demolit they're making a demolition of the roof trying to get a hole big enough to let jesus let the, 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 let their friend down and when these four friends finally pull up the last of the roof slabs and daylight pours into the room it probably was quite a scene I've often thought, I wonder if Peter had roof insurance. I and mean, it's his house. You know, these guys are ripping his roof up. I, he couldn't do anything about it. He was stuck inside with a crowd like they were. So I, I imagine these four friends probably helped him repair the roof when, they, when the crowd left. Uh, it must have been a pretty good sized hole. If you think about a sleeping bag or an army cot, because they had to let this guy down level. They couldn't just drop him in with his hands. You know, they had to let him down flat. So it's a pretty big hole. They had to dig in the roof. Probably took some time. We do know that these four men, or women, had faith that Jesus would heal their paralyzed friend, or they wouldn't have gone to all the work to get him in front of Jesus. You know, this was hard work. It was pretty unorthodox. You're interrupting the master who's teaching, and it could have been expensive that they had to pay for the repairs. But they believed that Jesus would heal him, and they loved their friend enough to do whatever it took to get their friend in front of Jesus. Jesus had been healing everyone who came to Capernaum, so they had pretty good odds that Jesus would heal him. Interesting application question. Are we willing to do whatever it takes to get our family and friends in front of Jesus? Do we really believe that Jesus will heal them spiritually? Do we love them enough to arrange an introduction to the master? They did. We do know that Jesus viewed their actions as having faith that they would heal their friend because it says in verse 5, and Jesus seeing their faith said to the paralytic, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man blaspheme, or why does this man speak in this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Here's the principle. Our greatest need and God's greatest gift is forgiveness. Those who accept Jesus' forgiveness go to heaven, but those who reject Jesus' forgiveness go to hell. Our greatest need and God's greatest gift is forgiveness. Those who accept Jesus' forgiveness go to heaven, but those who reject Jesus' forgiveness go to hell. And I put that in there very directly. The Bible is very, very clear about eternal destiny based on who you believe and why you believe what you believe. Because the reality is our sin separates us from God. Our sin breaks our relationship with God. And because God loves sinners, He longs to reconcile. He longs to forgive. Our God is a forgiving God who longs to reconcile people's broken relationship with Himself. The God of the Bible is a loving, compassionate, forgiving God. Exodus 34.6 This is the very first time that God reveals his character to Moses. And he says in Exodus 34, 6 on the mountain when he's talking to Moses, then the Lord passed by in front of him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. We know that God forgives... We also know that God forgets Psalm 103, verse 12. How far, how much does God forgive? His forgiveness is infinite as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. You know, there's a North Pole and a South Pole. So if you say, well, as far as the North Pole is from the South Pole, that is how far God's removed our transgressions. It's only about 12,000 miles. Now it's not too far, right? The Arctic turn flies around that every year. But there is no West Pole or East Pole. So when it says as far as the East is from the West, that's infinite. There is no location. So when God forgives, He forgives and does not remember. He chooses not to remember. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth are surprising. They're very compassionate, but they're very surprising. And they are words of compassion, not for his physical brokenness, but for his spiritual brokenness. See, this man's visible problem is pretty obvious. He's a quadriplegic. The problem is obvious. Well, that's not his real problem. His real problem and our real problem is never physical. It's never the circumstances. It's not the paralysis. It's his sin. That's the problem that Jesus addresses. For us, nothing has changed. Sin is our greatest problem, just like it was his greatest problem. When you look at someone in this world, regardless of whatever their issues are externally, you know what their greatest problem is. Yes? It's sin. It's always sin. And Jesus always addresses the key problem first. He never gets distracted by taking care of other things. Many, many times we focus on our physical problems, on our circumstantial problems, on our emotional problems, on our children problems, on our grandchildren problems. You can make the laundry list. But at the end of the day, our greatest problems are always related to me and God, not me and my problems, right? Say yes. Say it like you mean it. You know it's true. It's always me and God. That's really where it boils down to. So Jesus addresses this paralyzed man as my son. He says son or or child. It's a very personal term, very tender term. Conveys affection, refers to this paralyzed man as part of his family. When lost sinners meet the Savior, how does he treat them? How did Jesus in Luke, how did the father treat the prodigal son in Luke 15? He goes out, he welcomes him, he runs to meet him, right? He gives him his own robe. He gives him his own ring, symbol of authority, signet ring. Gives him his own shoes. Seats him at the family table as one of his sons and daughters. That's our Heavenly Father's compassion. Our Heavenly Father hates sin and delights in forgiving it which is an incredible paradox. He can't stand sin, but he joys in forgiving it. When Jesus saves you from sin, by the way, he also adopts you into his family. So you are family, and that's why we call ourselves family members. On the basis of his divine authority, Jesus says, my son or son or child, what? Your sins are forgiven. What this means is that he saw that this paralyzed man already had believing faith. Not just faith that Jesus would heal him physically, but faith that Jesus would forgive his sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Obviously, Jesus could see inside this man's heart, right? And knew that he already exercised believing faith. By the way, you're not forgiven until you what? Ask for it and receive it. Jesus Christ has died for the sins of the world, but for that to be applied to our life, what do we need to do? We need to come in faith and humility, confess our sins, and ask Him to forgive us. Yes? And will He forgive us? Those who come to me, I will in no way cast out. So Jesus forgave this man on the basis of faith, not on the basis of works, not on the basis of any law-keeping, not on the basis of the Pharisees' regulations or traditions. God's forgiveness is always... Pure grace. And when Jesus forgives us our sins, we're adopted into His family and we have fellowship with our Heavenly Father. Now, you want to know why this is so unusual. In that culture, it was common belief that if you had a physical problem, a disease, a sickness, a financial problem, family trouble, etc., it was proof positive that you had unconfessed sin in your life right now. So you were judged on the basis of whatever problem you had because they said there's sin in your life or you wouldn't have this suffering. Your personal sin led to your personal suffering. Jesus got asked that by his disciples when he healed a man born blind in John 9.2. The disciples asked him. This was common cultural belief. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind. This man was born blind. Jesus opened his eyes and they said, how come he was born blind? There must be sin somewhere. Either he sinned or his parents sinned. Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the truth of it is human suffering is a consequence of sin. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, this planet's been filled with suffering and disease and death because God cursed sin. So suffering is a consequence of sin. However, just because you are suffering now does not necessarily mean it's a direct consequence of some specific sin that you may have committed. Now, it is true that there are consequences to sin. My father smoked for 55 years and then got surprised that he got lung cancer. Surprise, surprise, right? I mean, there are consequences. I understand that. But Jesus told his disciples that this man was born blind had nothing to do with anybody's personal sin at that point in time. He was born blind for the express purpose that God would be glorified when Jesus miraculously opened his eyes. God's people, you and I, we experience sickness, suffering, disease, and death in exactly the same proportion as people who reject God's rule over their life. Yes? None of us get get out of disease card free that somehow when you follow Jesus, your life is going to be problem free. Not true. Matter of fact, I think sometimes the troubles are greater. But we have divine help, the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. But we do need to understand that our Heavenly Father does have divine purpose in everything that He allows, including suffering. In this particular case, we're not told how this man came to be paralyzed. We don't know whether there was an accident, whether he was born paralyzed, whether you know he was building a house and a rock fell on his neck, but we do know that Jesus will heal him. First spiritually, then physically. Now the scribes and Pharisees are looking for something to accuse Jesus of, and boy, they hit the jackpot because immediately they say in their heart, Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive God? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they're right on two counts. Number one, no one can forgive sins but God alone. And number two, any man who claims to be able to forgive sins is blasphemy. Blasphemy means to insult God. It means to treat God as less than holy. It means to treat God like you treat a common human being. Does it say that man can forgive sins is to bring God down to man's level? That is blasphemy. Where the scribes and Pharisees were dead wrong is their assessment of Jesus. They said he was only a man, and therefore he was blasphemy. The whole point of this story is to prove the identity of who Jesus was. That's Mark's whole point. He's demonstrating the deity of Christ, the lordship of Christ, the godhood of Christ by how Jesus behaves. And Jesus claims the authority to forgive sins. He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. That either makes Jesus a liar or it makes him lord. Either Jesus is God or he's an imposter. He claims to be God, but he's really not. And these religious leaders have already drawn their conclusion. He's a man, therefore he's a liar, therefore he's blaspheming, and the Mosaic law commands us to stone him with stones until he is dead. Jesus now, however, is going to take the matter out of their hands. He's going to demonstrate his deity in front of everybody. And the first thing he does is read their minds. Verse 8. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit, they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? In other words, why are you thinking about this? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. Verse 12, and he got up, and immediately picked up his pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Here's the principle. God, Jesus proved that he is God and has the authority to forgive sins by reading minds and healing bodies. You want empirical evidence? Jesus proved that he is God, and has the authority to forgive sins by reading minds and healing bodies. Only God can read people's minds. Now, these Pharisees in their minds, or they're already plotting and scheming and going, he's a blasphemer. He's claiming to forgive sins, and nobody forgives sins but God. And Jesus reads their mind and calls them out on it. 1 Chronicles 28.9 says, The Lord searches all hearts. The last phrase is even scarier. The Lord understands every intent of our thought. That would be really good to keep in mind. When Jesus called him out publicly, that must have been quite a shock. The man they want to destroy is telling them exactly what they've been thinking. How do you destroy somebody who can read your mind? Difficult. It's a very sobering reality. If every single thought or image that crosses your mind was flashed up on the screen behind me, we would all be stunned at what you were thinking about. Of course, you would be stunned at what we were thinking about too. But Jesus can read the mind and he knows all our thoughts. That's why sin always begins in the heart. Sin always begins in the mind. Jesus then gives them a dilemma. He poses a question to them to answer and he says, you, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your pallet and walk? And the answer is pretty obvious it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven because the results are not verifiable, right? How do you prove that someone's sins have been forgiven? I mean, what's the visible evidence that sins have been forgiven? On the other hand, when you command a paraplegic, get up, take up your pallet and walk, either they get up, pick up their pallet and walk, or they don't, right? And the results are instantly obvious whether or not you have the power over disease or not. If Jesus commands this man to walk and he does walk, it's visible proof that he really is God, yes? And he does really have the authority to forgive sins. It proves he's not a blasphemer, that he really is God come in human flesh. So Jesus is using this physical miracle to prove the spiritual reality that he is in fact God. And since he is God, he can not only forgive sin, he can overrule the consequences of sin, which is suffering and disease and sickness and death, etc. In other words, he's proving he has the authority to forgive sin by demonstrating his power over the consequence of sin, which in this case is is paralysis. And then Jesus tests the man's faith. He says, get up, pick up your pallet and go to your home. And the man responds with faith and obedience. He gets up. Picks up his pallet in the sight of everyone. It's a packed house. There's a lot of witnesses. And he walks out. The Gospel of Luke tells us that he was glorifying God as he walked out. Can you imagine? And I'll bet you money, the crowd just parted like water when he walked out. Right? It's pretty obvious that Jesus is not a fraud. It's pretty obvious that Jesus is not another holy man. You've got eyewitness evidence. And the crowd is bonzo. I mean, they're wowed out of their brain. It literally says, out of their mind. They're impressed, but they're not converted. They were glorifying God for the miracle. They were awestruck, but there's no record that they believed Jesus was the Son of God. Luke 5 tells the same account that they were filled with phobos, which is phobia, which is fear and panic. They feared because they knew they were in the presence of the supernatural. I guess so. They probably knew this guy for decades who had been a quadriplegic. Matthew 9.8 records that when the crowd saw this miracle, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Here's why they were confounded and not converted. The crowd knew the miracle was from God, but they still believed Jesus was a man. Just a man. A holy man, a good man, a human prophet. But the power to heal this man was not in him. It was given to him from God. They did not believe that he was God in the flesh. They would not believe that Jesus is God. They wanted miracles. They wanted healings. They wanted God's power on demonstration. By the way, our culture is no different. Does our culture crave the spectacular? Oh my gosh, if it's large and in charge, when you look at the Super Bowl halftime show, it's all about can you beat this spectacle from last year, right? It's all about how can you wow people. So when Jesus performs miracles, he overrides the natural order of things. He overrides space and time and matter and energy. He's demonstrating that he alone is the God who controls the laws that govern his creation. Jesus did miracles. He gave people evidence to authenticate his claim that he is God. Miracles are not ends in themselves. Our culture craves miracles. Show me a miracle. Show me something spectacular. We have entire church groups that want God to do something visible. Attach a limb. Open the eyes of the blind. Cure cancer, etc., etc. But miracles are never ends in themselves. Miracles are always means to an end. Miracles are always designed when they're done by Jesus to encourage saving faith in the one who performs the miracle. The point of the miracle was to point to Jesus as God so that those watching would place their faith in Him as their Savior. That's the whole point. And this crowd missed the greatest miracle performed that day. They applauded God's miracle that made a paralyzed man walk they failed, totally failed to appreciate God's greater miracle that saved a lost man from hell. You know, we come to church here, and there are miracles done in every service. The greatest miracle you see in every service is when people do spiritual business with God and surrender to Jesus Christ. And they have moved from eternal death to eternal life. They have entered the kingdom of heaven. And they are now going to spend eternity with Jesus Christ in heaven. They move from spiritual death to spiritual life in a moment. That is the greatest miracle on the planet. They have received God's greatest gift, which is forgiveness for their greatest need, which is separation from God due to the sin. And every week it happens. And the more it happens, the more we go, Huh? Oh, hmm, yeah, wow. Three people came forward, one person came forward. We missed the miracle. Because, we, we, you know, if someone on a pallet, a quadriplegic, got healed in this church and jumped up and walked, it would make national news. Valley Baptist Church, whatever happened, they'd find some way to explain the way this quadriplegic now walks, and he'd be interviewed on every talk show on the country. But people moving from death to life, eternal life, happens every week. And because of that, it's easy to miss the miracle. Don't miss the miracle of salvation. Don't overlook God's greatest gift of forgiveness. That was the real miracle. So this crowd, they value the miracle more than the message. Before healing this man, Jesus had been preaching the real gospel to them. He had been preaching how to become saved. He was telling them they were sinners, that he, they needed the Savior, and that He was that Savior. They refused to believe that their own sins needed forgiving. They had come face to face with the Holy One of Heaven, saw His miracles, and ignored His message. And later on, most of them will actively reject Him and His message and partner with the religious leaders and kill Him. It's interesting that Jesus says, he claims that he has the authority on earth to forgive sin. In your Bible, I want you to underline the word on earth. The place where forgiveness takes place, the only place where forgiveness takes place is here on earth, here and now. The day of salvation is always today. The day to repent and receive Jesus' forgiveness is always today. Because God's greatest gift, God's greatest gift of forgiveness, has an expiration date. It's a time-limited offer. God's offer of forgiveness is limited to our time on earth. There is no forgiveness granted after death. When you die and stand before God, either you will have repented and received his gift of forgiveness, or you will have rejected his gift of forgiveness. If you repent and receive his forgiveness, you will face Jesus as your Savior. If you reject his gift of forgiveness, you will face Jesus as your judge. Right? That's why Jesus says over and over again, Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. And the truth of it is, most of us in this room have been walking with Jesus for some time. Some of you look like forever. Actually, it's not quite that bad. I see Jesus on your face and you make me smile. But even us who have known him, we still sin. And our sin still creates barriers and prevents intimacy. We need to come to him with forgiveness for our sin daily as well so today is not only the day of salvation it's always the day it's always the right time to seek the gift of forgiveness because we are sinners and we can be restored on a daily basis on a moment by moment basis as we come to god and ask for his forgiveness now jesus could forgive this man's sins when he did because he knew that in less than two years he had a date with the cross and the cross was where he was going to pay for those sins that he was going to forgive with his own blood. See, the greatest miracle is God's forgiveness, but it's free to us because it was unbelievably expensive for the Savior. God the Father gave us mercy, but in order to give us mercy, he had to give Jesus justice. God the Father can give us eternal life because Jesus died in our place. So the price tag of forgiveness is not free. It's a gift that we should exercise every day and receive, but it was paid for in blood. So for us, I guess the application is very simple. Don't neglect or reject God's greatest gift, the gift of forgiveness. Not just one time as a Savior, but daily, daily, daily. And since you and I have already experienced God's forgiveness, We are called to be like the four friends who had faith that Jesus would heal their friend enough to be unorthodox, enough to be out-of-the-box thinkers who love their friend enough to get them in front of the Savior and make the introduction who can forgive their sins. And lastly, this is not the point of this lesson, but it's an application point as well. Those of us who have been forgiven by the Savior need to forgive others in the same way that God has forgiven us, because like Jesus, we are most like God when we forgive others in the same way that He's forgiven us. Amen? Okay, Tom's going to cup, I'm going to cup right now and lead us in our prayer and praise, but let me highlight and summarize: Jesus made the gospel the center of His life, and so should we. Number two. Faith always lead to action. Do we trust Jesus enough and do we love people enough to introduce them to the Savior? Our greatest need and God's greatest gift is forgiveness. Those who accept Jesus' forgiveness go to heaven. Those who reject Jesus' forgiveness go to hell. And lastly, Jesus proved that he is God and has the authority to forgive sins by reading minds and healing bodies. You know, you don't have to look far to see evidence of the deity of Christ. When we say we exercise faith in Christ, we exercise faith with a lot of evidence. A lot of evidence. And we're going to see more of that in coming weeks. So next week, Lord willing, we'll move ahead to Mark 3. Thank you for coming. I love you. Now that you know...